Smoke Circle Assemble. It is time for part two of our history on American comics and its reflections on American history. We are speaking with Kevin Garcia, educator, comic book historian. He's worked for Marvel as a researcher for a time, and he is also an author himself, having written comic books and children's books. If you missed part one, make sure you go back and listen to that because it's been a great conversation so far. But if you need a refresher, in part one, we discussed the beginning of comics. What did comics look like at the turn of the 20th century? How were they used? How were they a mirror back on American society and its population at the time? How did editorial cartoons and small comic strips in newspapers become the comic books and the characters that we know and love today? We spent most of our time in part one in the golden age of comics, and we're just getting into the silver age of comics. Post-World War II, the start of the Cold War, fears about communism, how these things were all going on in American history at the time, but then were also being reflected in comics. In part two here, we're going to be picking it up in the silver age and taking it through to the present day looking at representation of different cultures and different peoples in American society and how they're reflected in the comics. What did the Vietnam War, Watergate, what did civil rights and the counterculture of the 60s all have to do with what comics were publishing at that time? And we're going to be jumping back into that conversation and we're not going to be stopping. So no mid-break in this episode. So I just want to remind everybody to please make sure that you like, that you follow, that you're subscribed rating, reviewing, all these things that help our little podcast and help us grow are so amazingly, amazingly appreciated. And we also now have a Patreon. We call it our Best Buds Club. Get it? Best Buds? Ah. Anyway, so if you want to sling us a few dollars over there and help support our show in a financial way, you know, I mean, oh my goodness, my heart would explode. And in fact, if you are really loving this topic of comics and you want to hear more geeky chat, Katie, Kevin, and I ended up having nearly a whole other uh, 45 minutes to an hour about our favorite comics, our favorite characters, our favorite mediums in which we've seen our favorite characters and animations and our artists and, and writers, all these things. So that is all over on our Patreon. If you want to get in on the nerd chat with us, we had a really great time. We ended up recording for about four hours, just so you all know. We've had a really great time with this topic. And so with all of that said, let's puff, puff, pass it on to part two and our conversation of the history of American comics. You're now in the Silver Age, uh, but this is the time period where we are now in 60s America. I mean, I think when most people think of back to 1960s America, they're thinking hippies, Woodstock, civil rights, counterculture, psychedelics, Vietnam. Like there's there's a lot of stuff that is happening. And in everything American you just mentioned shows up in the comics. Although and it's it sure does. Very different depending on which publisher and which creator. <laughs> Interesting. So we'll uh, we'll start with like definition of why we're you know what we're calling yeah so this time period the let's Silver get into Age that. comics. A friend of mine yeah. goes by the name the comics historian, which literally his job title and who he is. Uh, you find him on YouTube and TikTok, Alex Graham. Um, he breaks it up into many different categories. He will have the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Platinum Age, the Bronze Age. And, and, and I like his categories, but I'm going to stick with the broader ones as we talk. It's just, it's just easier that way. 
So we talked about the golden age of comics. Uh, yes, there were comics before Superman, but we really started with Action Comics number one because that's where the golden age of superheroes kicks off, even if, as I said, war comics and, 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 uh, and romance comics, other things all existed. And then with the Silver Age, um, there are many different definitions for it. For Marvel, it starts in 61 with Fantastic Four, number one. But for most comic book people, they will start it with the rebirth of the Flash in, uh, I think, 56. Um, that's the first Barry Allen Flash. Um, and that is uh, where uh, the DC creators were like, well, you know what? The water's right. Let's just try to reinvent our heroes in this new censored landscape because horror comics aren't going to go. War comics aren't really working out the way they used to. So let's bring superheroes back. And obviously Superman and Batman, they never went anywhere, but you know, so they reinvent Barry Allen, they reinvent Green Lantern, they reinvent uh, Hawkman and, and uh, to an extent, and they reinvent the Adam and a bunch of other characters and they bring them in. They, they have pretty neat runs. Um, there were some pre silver age characters that some people call, I think the atomic age. And that is kind of after the golden age ended and the silver age officially began, there's these attempts at bringing back superheroes that didn't really take. Uh, for example, I think Martian Manhunter might predate uh, Barry oh, Allen yeah. Flash. Um, mm-hmm. There's also at Marvel, they, they, I already mentioned, they tried to bring Captain America back and failed. They did succeed for about a year with no more. Uh, there was also a character called Marvel Boy, who was supposed to be their flagship character that lasted all three issues. Um, there was uh, Venus, who started out as kind of like a goddess character who would come down and save people, but then eventually just became romance or suspense comics. Um, you know, so things, you know, the, the attempts. But by the Silver Age, once it really kicks off, superheroes were the name of the game. Uh, there were still Western comics. There were still romance comics. And there were still comedy comics like what was Archie. Archie started in the, in the 40s and continued on. Marvel had a very successful Archie knockoff called Patsy Walker, who, if you've watched the Jessica Jones show, that's Jessica's best friend. Mm-hmm. So Jessica's best friend is older than most Marvel characters. She's from 1946. Um, she's literally, it's, it's, it's the whole setup of Veronica, Archie and Betty, except the Betty character is the main character of the comic. Okay. So it was, so it was Patsy Walker and then Buzz Baxter and then, and, and Hetty Wolf. Um, but, but superheroes, that's the name of the game. Um, and these are the clean cut heroes. When we think of like the heroes who get along with the police and they're all helping people out and they, they have a no killing code. All that stuff is, is really the sixties that didn't. It came up somewhat in the 40s, but it really wasn't a thing till the 60s. Um, and what's really interesting is is how Marvel gets into the game is due to Martin Goodman again seeing somebody else be successful, basically. So he saw <laughs> Superman being successful, told his pulp people, make me a comic book. And then he saw the Justice League being successful and tells Stan Lee, we need that kind of comic book. And Stan's like, I can do this. There was, however, a condition. And that is um, Marvel at that time could not really afford to publish their own things. So they were being helped in publishing by DC Comics. So DC Comics said, you're only allowed to put out X number of books per year that we will publish. because We don't want you to be full competitors, a little bit of a competitor. And they were skittish about the idea of superheroes, you know. And even the publisher was skittish saying, I don't know if superheroes are going to be that successful. In fact, what Marvel was really having fun with was horror comics that could be published under the code and horror comics under the code was giant monsters. So there was just a ton of giant monster books that Marvel's putting out. That's where Groot comes from. He's, he's predates <laughs> a lot of these characters. He's, he's one of Marvel's original characters. Um, so Stan's like, I can do a superhero comic book. 
that is a team book. But because they didn't want to make it too obvious, they just made it another science fiction book with monsters. So literally, the first Fantastic Four book is these scientists who get together, and one of them physically becomes a monster, and they end up fighting other monsters. And it was such a success that after a few issues, they're like, you know what, let's give them costumes. And then uh, Ant-Man is much the same way. Ant-Man first appears in a monster book where he's a scientist who accidentally becomes ant-sized and he has to fight ants that are to him giant. And then a couple issues later, they're like, you know what? Give him a costume. <laughs> and then I love that you mentioned Vietnam. Iron Man, if you watch the movies, was in war, uh, got captured, got injured, uh, and came back fighting his captors and this came back to America. In the original comics, it was Vietnam. Uh, this was the start of the Vietnam War. Um, I, I don't know if, uh, I think the U.S. had uh, some troops out there, but it wasn't like the full-on drafted force there yet. Um, and it was very much seen as like, go U.S., go U.S. I mean, sure, Korea happened. Let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but so, so Tony is a war profiteer in Vietnam when he gets captured. And uh, I, do, I will say that while the depictions of uh, Asian people visually improved in Marvel comics from the forties, they were still drawn with yellow skin and that, mm. would, that would continue through the seventies. Now really? I want to jump back to DC for a second. DC would have none of that. Uh, DC was like, if we're going to show hippies, we're going to show how dumb they are. If we're going to show Asians, we're going to have make fun of them. You know, it, it's like DC leaned in hard on that. That's why where Marvel got black Panther, it was a long time before DC got Black Lightning. By that mm -hmm. point, Marvel had had several black heroes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, like, and we can get into that as we, as we move. But the point is, Marvel was willing to push those envelopes a little bit. Uh, Stan especially, realizing who his audience was. Because I, I would not call Stan a saint. He would not have called himself a saint. He knew exactly what he was, and by all accounts... He would basically introduce himself to, to co-creators saying, this is what I'm planning to do. Are you in on it or not? And a lot of the co-creators are like, I, I don't want that kind of publicity. So Stan's like, all right, I'm going to take all the credit. You know, So it's like he, he told you what he's doing. you know. Mm -hmm. But he also understood which way the wind was blowing. And he said, no, we, we need – like if you read the early Festival comics, they feel very misogynist. But for the time, they were trying, you know. Mm -hmm. The fact that every Marvel team had one woman on it, well, they were trying, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, literally there's a whole issue of the Fantastic Four where the Fantastic Four are reading their fan mail because in universe fans of the Fantastic Four write them letters and, and they were just basically reading letters that Marvel was getting and they're like, what? They keep saying Sue is useless. Would you call Lincoln's mother useless? And it's just, it's such a horrible argument. It's like, she raised Lincoln. That's why she's important. That's why Sue is important. This is an actual thing that Reed Richards says in a comic written by Stan Lee. Um, they, they literally call it the, the Lincoln's mother defense is what a lot of uh, comics are. <laughs> okay, um, then. Okay. It's, it's but but he right. did realize that cha change needed to happen. Jack oh. Kirby, for example, really pushed for this as well. Um, I do want to point out that these creators are of their eras. So even when we show them being progressive, there are things that we, from a modern point of view, will not like. Yeah. For example, Jack Kirby was obsessed with the idea of a perfect society that existed somewhere. Um, you know, he, he made the Eternals, he made the Inhumans, he made um, he, I, 3D, Captain 3D from the 50s has a, also has a perfect society. He loved doing these. And in all of these societies, there'd be a good society of perfect white people. 
and a bad society of monstrous people. And it's like, he's of his era. But at the same time, he's trying. So by the 70s, he was including black people in his perfect societies. But in the 60s, he's like, I really want to do Black Panther. I really want to do this character that is a hero of Africa. And, And he was not created as a stereotype hero. Yes, people of Wakanda were all dressed like what white America thought Africans looked like. But within that, the Wakandans themselves had more technology than anybody that Reed had ever met. So both things were true at the same time. But what I think is really important here is that when he first designed Black Panther, you could see his face. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the publisher or Stanley, somebody was worried that if you put this on the cover of Fantastic Four in the South, they're going to pull the comic and not sell it. So Jack Kirby redesigned Black Panther's mask to be a full face mask. Okay. So on the cover, he didn't take off his mask. But inside the comic, it's T'Challa. You okay. know? So that was done purposefully with the knowledge that it probably wouldn't get published. Meanwhile, at DC, every time the creators wanted to have a black hero, the editors were saying, you can't do that. We won't allow it. It won't sell. It's a bad idea. It doesn't make sense. Um, to me, the most egregious example of that is with the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, which is a team that started in the 50s uh, with Superboy. These are superheroes mm-hmm. from a thousand years in the future, right? And they're all white. And one of the creators was like, we, I really want to show other people here. Um, I'm going to make a black hero. And the editor literally said, no, no, we don't, there's a plan for that. There's a plan for that. So finally, as that kept getting pushed back, what's the plan? What can I do with this character? When can I include a black hero on the Legion of Superheroes? And the editor goes, here's your story. So Tyrock is the first black hero in the Legion of Superheroes universe in the future. And it's revealed that all the black people of Earth left Earth because they were tired of dealing with Whitey. Um, And they founded their own planet. And Tyrock's whole thing is that he doesn't want to work with the white heroes because he doesn't trust them. And he has to learn to trust them. Yeah. Uh, Tyrock, if you look him up, has one of the gaudiest, most hideous costumes you can ever imagine. Story goes, the artist thought the story was so stupid. T- T-R-Y, Tyrock, no, T-I-R-O-C. Uh, okay. was he, the artist said that he thought the story was so stupid that he was going to purposely give the character the dumbest costume he could think of just because it was such a dumb story. Uh, also in Legion of Superheroes is a character called Pharaoh Lad who has an iron mask. And he wanted to have the character take off the mask at one point you find out Pharaoh Lad is black. Well, that wasn't allowed. So he ended up saying, oh, well, Pharaoh, uh, Matt, Pharaoh boy had his, uh, his face disfigured, so he's never able to take it off. Like, in his head, that character was supposed to be black, but mm-hmm. he wasn't allowed to show it. Sure. So while Marvel had, no. you know, admittedly the black exploitation of, of Luke Cage and Storm being literally raised in Africa, which is like, I get into that in a second, um, <laughs> at least they were trying. Mm. Whereas... DC wouldn't allow it. Now, I want to point out, though, that's not to say that everybody at Marvel is progressive. Uh, and I'm talking again. You guys interrupt me and let me know. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Because um, no, it's reflective of, like, just of, you know, in American history at this time period, it's it's all these different groups of people being like, hey, wait a second. It's not all white men in this world. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are other people that live here, too. And let's talk about it kind of thing. So. 
go for it. Well, there I'm, was one creator that definitely agreed with the concept of hippies are stupid and we shouldn't have them be respected. And he is Steve Ditko, the co-creator of Spider-Man. Hmm. Uh, he was a follower of Ayn Rand. Ayn, Ayn Rand? Never say her name correctly. Oh, Randian yeah. Ayn objectivism. Rand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Um, and Stan, tough guy that he is, would get into to issues with Steve Ditko and also Jack Kirby. To eventually, neither guy liked him at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it happened a lot quicker <laughs> with Steve Ditko. Um, and uh, there's literally an early comic where, keep in mind, the Marvel method was Stan would say, write a comic about a kid who gets spider powers. Go. And then Steve would come back with 15 pages. And and then Stan would put dialogue in. So Aunt May, Uncle Ben, all that stuff came from Steve Ditko. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was an early comic where Spider-Man sees all of these protesters and they're literally, they're asking, what are you protesting? We're protesting for the right to protest. Like they're literally just protesting. He's making them protest. And Peter Parker walks over to them like, oh, these guys, they wish they had something worth protesting. And it's, it's weird to see that from Peter Parker. In fact, years <laughs> later in the modern day, we've had writers have Peter Parker go, and there was that one week where I was reading the fountainhead and I just got a little <laughs> bit too into myself. But, <laughs> but he did go definitely one of that, but I'm bringing this up for a reason because I've been rereading early Dr. Strange. And while Spider-Man was probably 70, 30, Steve Ditko, right? Dr. Strange was about 90, 10, Steve Ditko. It was mostly Steve Ditko. And there's this early issue of Dr. Strange, very early, where he is shot and goes to a hospital and he wakes up, the doctor is treating him and says, you know, Dr. Strange, we've got your bullet healed. You're, you're going to be okay. And all this sort of that. And Dr. Strange thanks him and leaves. That's a black doctor. Mm. Like there was no fanfare about it. About it. There's no like, like, I can't believe you're black. There's no, there's no excuse for, oh, well, it's because you're in a Harlem hospital or something. No, oh, just God. the doctor is black. The nurse is white. It's just, it's, it's the way it is. And, yeah. and I'm like, as much as I don't agree with a lot of Steve Ditko's politics, I got to give him credit for doing something that you couldn't even done in the DC comic book at that time. Yeah. You know? Uh, so I just think that's interesting. You know, it's neat. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to stop yeah. here for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me questions. <laughs> oh no, I was just going to say, you know, with with these things going on, like, um, what is the the change in superhero? We've already kind of touched on that already, but um, that was really my question was just with the this well, the change counterculture mm-hmm. because Stan yeah. realized that where their biggest audience was wasn't ten year old kids; it was college students. <sighs> so Stan was aiming it at them. Steve Ditko couldn't stand, you know, hippies doing a bunch of drugs, but they love Doctor Strange. You know, <laughs> I love Doctor Strange too. Yeah, me too, dude. <laughs> I've got some Doctor Strange in the drawer over there. Yeah, so, yeah. So Stan reflected that if that's what the audience wanted, these more politically charged stories, he would push for them. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I feel like comics is a great opportunity for people to divorce themselves from the real, real world and make a better one. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the goal there. And I think that's yeah. when you get stuff like like uh, Iron Man realizing that maybe I shouldn't be selling weapons. Like, wouldn't mm-hmm. that be nice if military industrialists could do that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. With that sort of change in, in the audience and also in America as well, too, like kind of how all this is kind of changing and evolving here. What would you say is, I guess, like the legacy of the Silver Age? What is that set up for future comics? You know, I mean, in a very real sense, 
that legacy is everything we think of as superheroes today is really founded in that 1960s era. Uh, yes, it started in the 50s with DC, but it really took root when DC started seeing what Marvel was doing with their characters that act like real people, eh, more so than, I mean, maybe not typical compared to today's comics, but for the time. And DC tried to emulate that a bit. And you started getting, you know, the Teen Titans where they all talk like what adult, you know, white guys think teenagers are talking like, <laughs> we're hip, daddy-o, you know, that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, but but they were, they. it really is what we think of today. But in another respect, there is something else that defines that era that um, I think is more DC than Marvel, but definitely defines that era. And that's Adam West. You know, um, the, the, the Adam West Batman was camp for camp's sake. And, and it came out just after the word camp had just entered the American lexicon. And we were, you know, using that word, you know, which started out in, in gay culture and stuff. And it became, you know, a more common word. Um, and that view of Batman was reflected in the comics. They were already doing sillier comics in, in, in the comics. If you read Batman of the 50s, late 50s, he was on a regular basis fighting aliens and becoming a, a, a rubber man and all kinds of other weird stuff. It's just, just whatever, <laughs> you know? But after Adam West came out, they started making the comics at DC more reflect that. And then while Marvel definitely wasn't doing that, they were still just as colorful. And that, that over-the-top color and over-the-top uh, action um, Stan called it the, the Marvel style of drawing where artists like Sal Buscema and others would do stuff like, if you're going to show a punch, show the whole body getting into it. If you're showing somebody to be scared, have their whole body be scared. And um, very famously, this leads to a situation that is to this day debated among fans. And that is, is Hank Pym Atman a wife beater? And it's, you, if, you, if you type in Hank Pym and Jan, you're going to see the slap. And the thing is, in the drawing, uh, he is full body moving his body like this, and she is flying across in her nightgown, right? And it, it oh. led to a whole story where he gets court-martialed and everything else, not just for that, but for other things that he was doing. But in the context of the story, he had gone through a psychotic break and was having a different personality take take control and Jan realized that Hank was never going to marry her, but this alternate personality would marry her. So she went along with it just to get him to marry her. And the whole story is just weird on multiple levels. Um, and <laughs> the writer swears up and down that when I wrote it, he just brushes, brushes her off of him and said, no, leave me alone while I'm doing this. And the artist says, well, to be honest, I did do everything over the top whenever they did it because that's what Stan wanted. So I did, if he's going to push her, he's going to push her all the way. And so then it became a whole story about her having a black eye and everything else, which the writer said, no, that was not my original intention, but it doesn't matter. It's there. Um, it's what's pretty weird, dramatic. Say again? Yeah. It's pretty dramatic. It is very, like you look it up, it is, it is very dramatic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the alternate personality. Oh, wow, is, that, yeah. is she in a nightgown there? I can't tell. I think so. Yes, yeah. That's the one. Yeah, and that's the yellow jack, yellow jacket persona um, is, is not Hank Pym. Wow. In fact, when she, when Jan says, "I want you guys to meet my new boyfriend, Yellow Jacket," Yellow Jacket says, "Yeah, I killed Hank Pym." And everybody's like, "Why is Jan with him?" And Jan, literally, her interior dialogue is just, "I know he'll stay with me this way." And it's like, "What the heck are you writing?" Anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah. So what's oh, weird no. is Reed Richards, Peter Parker, 
there's a lot of comics where any one of these guys has used their strength against their significant others, throwing them against the room, but it's only Hank Pym is the one that they look at. Um, yes. I'm not trying to be a Hank Pym apologist, but I'm just giving as an example of the, the writers yeah. just giving instructions to the artist, the artist doing whatever they want, and the writer now having to adjust the script to match the new art. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, Silver Surfer, he only exists because uh, Stan told Jack Kirby, what if we had the Fantastic Four fight a god? And so he does Galactus. And then Stan's like, who's this guy flying around him? And Jack Kirby says, well, if you're a god, you're not going to talk for yourself. You're going to have somebody else talk for you. So Silver Surfer only existed because Jack just said, this is something that needs to exist. And that's the Marvel method where artists and writers sometimes were not in the same room trying to get a story together. And that <laughs> that would happen. Um but start making so, shit up. <laughs> exactly. So the legacy of the Silver Age is both the colorful costumes and the misunderstandings. Mm. Like, you know, Adam West Batman, people who didn't read comics just felt that's what comics were. So when um, underground comics started coming out in the 60s, um, it's still technically the Silver Age as far as the mainstream is concerned. But we got people like R. Crumb and Arnold uh, Spiegelman and, and in the 70s making these very adult comics that kind of blew some people away. Like, how can you have that in a book? Because they weren't using the comics code. They weren't caring if it was censored or not. And this came to a head. What's really the end of the silver age with things like the green lantern and green arrow storyline where green lantern and green arrow go on a road trip across America. And I, this is a really great storyline. It's weird, but (laughs) Yeah. Put it lightly, Batman is very conservative. Yeah. And um, he's not, they don't put him into the political part of that term, but in terms of his actions and stuff, mm-hmm. Green Arrow is like, what if you had the most progressive, liberal, you know, uh, possible mm-hmm. billionaire? That would be Green Arrow. Yeah. And so um, Green Arrow is constantly at odds with Batman, but he's also at odds with Green Lantern because Hal Jordan is, to put it lightly, an idiot. Um, and so, like, <laughs> Hal Jordan, for example, famously sees uh, all of these people throwing rocks at this guy. And he goes to save him. They throw cans at him and all kinds of stuff. They're threatening to kill him. And he goes to protect him. And, and the guy goes, thank you so much, Green Lantern. You saved me from these people. I'm the landlord of this building. I've been trying to make this building, you know, better for them. And they're upset at me. I don't understand why. And um, he's a slumlord. Like, he yeah. was really just just gouging yeah. everything he could out of these people and not giving them anything. And Green Lantern was like, hey, respect him. He owns the house. Uh-huh. Um, and Green Arrow is like, you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> and there's and there's famously a, a panel where a black man walks up to these two guys arguing about this and says to Green Lantern, you know, I heard about you, Green Lantern. I heard you protect the blue people and the orange people and the green people and, and the fish people. And Do you ever protect the black people? Mm-hmm. And Hal was like, I don't have an answer for that. So then that became a storyline. So this is kind of like the tail end of the Silver Age where that whole idealism of like, I'm Tony Stark and I'm in Vietnam. is more like, oh, crap, I'm Tony Stark and I'm in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's like this is where that start, that realization starts happening where the characters start feeling like they're in a real world. Yeah. Um, And it really kicks off with stuff like uh, Stan Lee is approached by the actual the, the DOJ saying, hey, could you, I think it was DOJ, it could have been a, another association, but they approached him saying, hey, um, I want you to do a comic about why drugs are bad. And Stan's like, this is a good idea. So he's going to do a comic where Peter learns that his roommate, Harry Osborne, is doing drugs. 
And it's a very dramatic uh, two or three issues. Very, very, very uh, intense. You see Harry just kind of falling into the the addiction and the obsession, having un, uh, uh, unable to keep track of reality sometimes. He's just really just falling apart. And the Comics Code Authority said, you can't publish this. Um, you can't publish anything with drugs in it. And Stan's like, but the whole point of the story is drugs are bad. The government asked me to make this. Right. And they're like, hey, the rules are here for a reason. So he published those issues of Spider-Man with no code on it. And he just published them anyway. And they sold just fine. And the code said, crap, we should change. Uh, so with them changing, you could now have the story where um, Green Lantern and Green Arrow come back home to Green, Green Arrow's home and see that the sidekick that he hasn't hung out with in a while uh, is doing drugs and not doing well. And so he couldn't believe it. Just got threw him out of the house that he couldn't believe that his sidekick was doing drugs. And, it, and that became a whole story for that of like, well, what do you do when a family member is, is an addict, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then you get stories like, well, Gwen Stacy. Um, Stan had left the book by that point. Uh, Stan sweared up and down up to the moment of his death that he never approved it. But, uh, but no, the writers were like, we wouldn't have done anything without his approval. We asked him, can we kill somebody? Uh, and, uh, and they killed Gwen Stacy. And that was dramatic because that just didn't happen up to that point. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and I know I'm, 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 I know I'm Marvel biased, but I'm going to say that DC <laughs> would try to do these things and they weren't as successful. They um, weren't. Famously, for example, <laughs> yeah. well, they, I am uh, a DC fan. I think DC is like heads and tails above Marvel just for me personally, because that's just what I latched on to as a child. But I definitely agree with that. There's Marvel's more of a pioneer of sorts with these. Yeah, things. Mm -hmm. there's, uh, I always compare them. I say DC heroes are paragons uh, among men. And then in Marvel, even the gods are flawed. Mm -hmm. There's literally a comic where Odin goes to Tony Stark and says, I think I'm an alcoholic like that. Wow. <laughs> you know. um, but uh, DC where they tried to do something kind of like the Gwen Stacy thing is they had uh, Aquaman's baby get killed. And it's yeah. like, that's a very different story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it was very rough. And it, it, it wasn't treated very well. Um, so now we get into what a lot of people call the bronze age. Yeah. And this is where you have, uh, darker stories, uh, often more grounded and often uh, more uh, diverse characters. Now, I put an asterisk on that because they are not diverse creators making these diverse characters. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned earlier that Storm was raised in Africa. And I say that with kind of a look, I'm, I'm rolling my eyes as I say it, because for the X-Men, if you were not plain white, they had to explain you. Right. Mm. Uh, oh, you're black. You're from Africa. You're Latino. You are from Mexico or you're from Brazil. Uh, you know, it, it's oh, like just every character that showed up and, and nothing wrong with having immigrants. I think immigrants, it's great to show immigrants in your story, but mm -hmm. there was never a character who was just like, I'm just, I, I'm a black guy from Chicago. That didn't mm -hmm. happen, you know, in, in the X-Men. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that bothered me as a, as a reader in the nineties, as a, as a, as a teenager, it bothered me looking for Latino characters that every single time there was Latino X-Men, he was from another country. And I'm like, every time? Like, always? <laughs> and then finally, when they had an American-born Latino character, uh, he was from the Barrio and was an ex-gang member. And I'm like, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Jeez. Um, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, so they had more diverse characters. You get the X-Men, which was purposely designed, the, the, the 70s X-Men were purposely designed to be an international team. Originally, the goal was to be able to sell the, sell the comic in other countries. 
but the team they ended up having involved a bunch of countries that Marvel didn't publish in. So it didn't didn't quite work out the way the publisher intended. But <laughs> you know, out well. we had at least one Canadian. So there's that. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so so that was that, and then um, you know Marvel would have a lot of characters that had black in their name who were black. Uh, it was just a thing, um, but significantly, Falcon didn't. Falcon was not the Black Falcon. He was just Falcon. Right. And significantly, when they brought him into Captain America, they renamed the book Captain America and the Falcon. It was not a sidekick. It was an equal partnership. And so that lasted for a good long time. Um, DC eventually came around. Um, do you guys know who the Brown Bomber is? I don't. I don't. This is a horrible story. So okay. I can't wait. Saying, the creators are saying, we want to have black characters. What, can we include them? And I don't know who came up with this. One of the editors says, what if you have a character who's like a white guy? And when he says a magic word, he transforms into a black hero. And uh, he became the, the, yeah. So what? Yeah. The brown bomber. Yeah. Now, he was. They, they did end up making him canon in the 90s, but only to make fun of the fact that that existed. Okay. Yeah. And by black creators. And by black creators. Okay. And by black creators. Uh, so the first DC hero who is a black hero is a black lightning created by Tony Isabella, who, by the way, created a lot of black characters because he, you know, he was saw the need there. So he created a lot mm-hmm. of black characters. Um, I think he created this page too. But um, so you get black lightning and you get a bunch of other characters that are showing this greater increase of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously your main characters are still going to be the white characters. Um, I'm going to rag on DC again for a second. Uh, <laughs> one, one of the characters I love ragging on is Hal Jordan. You mentioned growing up with it. My favorite hero as yeah. a kid was Green Lantern. Oh, dude. Over, Green Lantern was my least favorite. <laughs> but over time I realized it wasn't Hal Jordan I liked. Yeah. It was the idea that the best of every culture you get together from all over the universe and do what they did best until they, if they, even if they meant dying in battle. And I was yeah. like, I respected that. I loved that idea. Mm. But I hate Hal Jordan. Um, <laughs> and to give an example. He's not written um, well. <laughs> in the 70s. No, yes, no. In the 70s, uh, they brought in John Stewart. And Hal is talking to one of the blue, uh, tiny uh, guardians of the universe that, that are all knowing and whatever. Mm-hmm. And the guardian says, this will be, the other Green Lantern, you know, the one who will take over for you whenever you're unavailable, that kind of stuff like that. And how's like him? Look at him. He's angry constantly. He's he's a horrible, you know, this, he's not a good guy to use. And literally the guardian who I want to remind you is, is omniscient and and psychic and telepathic, what all this stuff says to him, your petty human bigotries aside, he is perfect. Literally the psychic guy said, you're racist. Yeah. (laughs) Uh-huh. Um, and, mm-hmm. and Hal's like, no, that's not the reason. I, it's just because I don't think he's right for the role. Um, yeah. you know, and so like, that's in the comic. Um, but anyway, Al. Uh, but they were, but so they brought in and John Stewart. And initially, John Stewart was the angry black man as a Green Lantern. But over time, he evolved and he's he became like the most peaceful Green Lantern over time. Um, he probably, in my view, the best Green Lantern, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so there was an evolution of this. And both companies were kind of coming along to it. Now, I mentioned it earlier. I'm, I'm getting on a topic again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm going to jump eras now. I'm going to go from the bronze to what's called like the dark age. All right. Oh, okay. The oh, the Grid. Black Cauldron. <laughs> Wrong <laughs> universe. <laughs> no, no. Right time period, though. 
Oh yeah. Um, uh, and and similar reasons sometimes. Um, uh, so uh, the thing is, I mentioned the, the underground comics that came out, like like you know Art Crumb and stuff. Uh, Stan, believe it or not, published an underground comic uh, called uh, Comics Book with an X at the end. Um, and uh, it, it only lasted a couple issues under Marvel. He ended up selling it to Kitchen Sink Press, who, who published the rest of it. The very first appearance of the mouse story is in that book, published by Marvel, so that's interesting. Um, and um, and so there were attempts to like incorporate this into the comics. Marvel saw what like uh, Warren Publishing and others were doing, and they would make magazines that were black and white. And in the black and white magazines, you could get away with anything because it's not a comic book. It's a mm-hmm. magazine. Mm-hmm. So they would have some some they would announce that we're going to have adult featured comics. So they could be R rated, but honestly, there were almost never anything R rated in those comics. Although I will say, there is an issue with Howard the Duck where you get to see him and his girlfriend make out. She's naked, so there's that. Oh my, yes. oh, Howard the Duck. Oh yeah, Howard the Duck and his go. human girlfriend. So that's a thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that was rare. They didn't they didn't usually have actual nudity in those in those black and white comics. But um, but it was an attempt to kind of push the waters a little bit. And as that's happening, you have new creators coming on that grew up with the 60s comics. So like Stan and Jack and those guys, they created stuff in the 40s and 50s and were continuing. In the 60s, you have people like Roy Thomas and um, Jim Shooter and others who come in as fans who grew up with those things, right? Right. So they made... Silver Age comics based on what they grew up with and, and, and how they wanted more realistic stuff. You get to the stuff in the 70s where you have that, that Bronze Age stuff. Well, by the 80s, you have people who grew up with that Bronze Age stuff and said, nah, that's not real. We need, we need real. And that's where you get people like Alan Moore. So Alan Moore was doing some British comics. He, did some, he actually did some Marvel and DC in Britain. Um, he did like a, a prose story for Superman, for example, one of his first works. And uh, he puts out in this anthology book called Warrior, he did uh, two of the stories in there. And I have Warrior number one somewhere here. She bought it at the flea market in Texas, believe it or not. That's so cool. I asked the lady, like, why do you have this magazine? And she <laughs> told me, my, my, my uh, boss was throwing everything out. He said I could take whatever I wanted. I was like, I choose to believe you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I bought the first appearance of, of uh, Viva for Vendetta and, and Marvel Man, who became Miracle Man, for two bucks. Anyway. Um, right on. So... He said, I'm going to do a superhero story, but I'm going to do it different. So we get uh, Marvel Man, just refer to him as Miracle Man, because that's what he's most known for reasons. Um, and he says, what if the superhero was in the real world? What would that mean? And it wasn't just like, you know, what if Batman was real? But it's more like, what if superpowers were real? So mm-hmm. you have somebody remembering that he used to be a Shazam-type hero back in the day as a kid, and he'd forgotten about it. And now that he's got those powers again, what what does that mean? Like he could oh, literally wow. lift a mountain. And, and and there's a point, there's a there's one issue where he's like doing this, lifting a giant boulder, and his girlfriend's like, okay, this is cool, but that's not physically possible. Because you're holding up all of the weight by one point. Everything should break around it. It's almost like physics bends for you. And he says, I know, isn't it great? And it's like <laughs> he's addressing these things. And uh-huh. um, and it is it is honestly a beautiful comic. I will say there's some things that are definitely of its era that don't age as well, but it's overall an amazing comic. It features a uh, a birth fully on panel, so okay, there's don't. that. Um, but it's it's. I like the demonstration of this. <laughs> yeah, 
panel. Yeah, on panel. It's like all there. There it is. <laughs> Everything's there. Um, wow. And 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 it's it's a really good book. And so the other companies start noticing him and they say, hey, you know, why don't you do more stuff for us? And he writes um, Captain Britain for Marvel and Swamp Thing yeah. for DC. Nice. And those are two of the most critically acclaimed books. Um, sadly, the Captain Britain books didn't really get a lot of international publishing. They only were primarily published in the UK and eventually got reprinted in the US, but never to any kind of fanfare. Fair, so they didn't really... The Captain Britain books are, some, in my view, some of the best comics that Marvel's ever published, and it's just they're not really? they're not well read, you know. But that's where we get the term Earth six sixteen from is from those books. Um, okay. So if you ever hear geeks saying that, that's where that comes from. And uh, technically, Alan Moore didn't know about Earth sixteen, but he's the one that put it into the story. Uh, and then with Swamp Thing, he takes a character that was always just a side character, uh, a weird monster character, and used it to do this great metaphysical journey on the, what it means to be a human being. And it was oh. very, very deep. There's an entire ep- issue all about sex where he doesn't have organs, but he has sex with his girlfriend because they both take psychedelics <laughs> simultaneously and share an orgasmic experience of the mind. Hmm. It oh. is interesting. It kind of that sounds like, uh, you know what that reminds me of is, um, what is his freaking name? Blue dude. <laughs> Always has his dick out. So that <laughs> brings Dr. us Manhattan. to Watchmen. So that right? brings us to Watchmen, which is what yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Finally so, someone understands um, me. <laughs> so now that he's getting some accolades at Marvel and DC and people are really noticing what he can do, he says, I want to do some books here. You know, I've already let DC reprint B for Vendetta, uh, not realizing what that really means. We'll get to that in a second. And he says, hey, DC, I saw that you guys just bought all of Charlton's heroes. Um, you're not doing them. You've had them for like five years now. Can I can I use them? And they're like, sure. What do you want to do? And he writes the script up. He gives them the little treatment. And they're like, you're going to destroy these characters. We could <laughs> never use them again if you did this. Could you, just, could you just relabel them and call them something else? And he's like, sure, but can I own them? And DC's like, look, as soon as this comic is out of print for two years, you can own them again. No Ooh. problem. So he remakes it. Dr. Manhattan, the guy that you're talking about, Blue Dude, <laughs> uh, is basically Captain Adam. You know, um, you got the, the Night Owl, who's basically Blue Beetle, mm-hmm. and Rorschach, who is the question, and so on, right? Um, and he does Watchmen, and it is, it is immediately groundbreaking. It is immediately mm-hmm. people just notice what this yeah. is. Um, it is so groundbreaking that I just told you that DC told him he could have the rights back after it's not in publishing, after it's not being published for two years. Watchmen is the first comic book in history that has never gone out of print. Yep. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) So they screwed him out of that. They still, they still have the rights to his view from dead, despite the fact that he originally published it without them. Uh. You know, uh, he never gave them back Um, for variety of reasons, half legitimate, half silly. He, he stopped, uh, working with Marvel. He swore them both off in the mid eighties. Then never came back again. Well, Mm -hmm. the same time period you have that you have, uh, Frank Miller who had been, he was the artist on Daredevil in the early Mm -hmm. eighties. And then they took over as a writer and he made it Mm -hmm. really intensely dark. And it was good. It was like levels of like, they didn't expect this kind of stuff. He took Kingpin, who was a character that nobody cared about. It was a minor Spider-Man bad guy a couple times and said, I'm going to make him everything. And then Kingpin became what he was. Yeah. So he goes to DC and says, can I reinvent Batman? 
and that's where you get everything about the modern Batman. Yes, sir, you that. may. The, uh, the idea that Alfred is Batman's adopted dad, that came from there. You know, that the idea <laughs> that um, that the corrupt, uh, you know, families and the politicians have been there. And then Batman came in and the mafia was kind of pushed aside. And that's where the villains come in. All that came from there, you know. Yeah. Um, and at Marvel, they weren't quite as dramatic as DC, but they were still doing stuff. For example, um, they did a book called The Nam. Which was which is really intense, and it was like you know I mentioned there were war books back in the day in, in the forties, and then they stopped for a bit because of the code. They came back after the code weakened with stuff like you know uh, Sergeant Fury and stuff, but nobody really died in those issues. And then later on, when the code weakened more, people could get killed in war, but no, nah, you know whatever. But when the Nam came out, which is literally the apostrophe N A M, it was Marvel doing a war comic that is basically platoon versus like a John Wayne war movie. You know, this was like wow. a real war comic. This was like mm. showing people being emotionally destroyed just by being there, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was, it was a good book. Um, then Marvel was also evolving their characters at the time. Um, Jim Starlin uh, is uh, the guy that created the infinity gauntlet and uh, Thanos and a bunch of other characters. Um, he started in, in, with Marvel in the seventies and, he got more and more psychedelic as he went, but he also brought this level of like metaphysical concepts to the characters. That was just something different that really hadn't been there before. Um, and it was the meaning, there was the idea that comic books could be deeper than you thought they were. It was the idea that comics could have this, this depth to them. And, it, and you know, bring this back to our initial discussion of real world versus comics. This is the Reagan era, you know, this is the mm-hmm. era when, yeah. you know, after after Nixon fell, um, you saw fewer comics except for at DC, which would say that 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 government was always right. Um, mm-hmm. Now, mind you, by the eighties, DC wasn't doing that anymore. But in the seventies, there's literally a comic where Superman's like talking to Nixon face to face and says, "If I can't trust you, Mr. President, who could I trust?" Um, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like that, that's, that's, that's this thing that happens, you know. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yes, um, Kissinger showed up in a DC comic as a guy that helped the heroes fight the bad guys, he showed up in a Marvel comic as the reason they can't arrest Dr. Doom. He literally protected <laughs> Dr. Doom in an issue yep. of super villain team up where Dr. Doom teams up with Kissinger. That feels right. <laughs> that was while he was uh, in office. Jeez, um, yeah. So, so yeah, so the comics get darker. They start showing that. And um, this leads to the nineties where all of that darkness just gets turned up to 11 mm-hmm. and we start getting these yeah. edgelord comics come out like spawn. I'm from <laughs> hell and I'm covered in spikes. Yeah. I fucking yeah. love spawn. <laughs> <laughs> He's great. I just got my deliverance, my monthly deliverance of spawn. This there's still somebody who buys comics for me, Laurel. Um, yeah. And he, I guess it's always spawn. And Blake brought it. He goes, I have your monthly spawn drop off. I was like, why spawn? He's like, I guess you were one of the few people who, when we did comic polls, you ordered spawn and you always ordered spawn. And I was like, I don't know, man, like he's spun. Like, how could you not? And what I loved most about him is he wasn't held by like DC or Marvel. He was an image comic and he is like, he's, just as like like people know who spawn is like they know who batman and superman is are and 
I loved that. I loved that he was like not held by light. Although Image is obviously a bigger comic now. Well, that's that. What you're saying is exactly why Image existed. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, the idea of the superstar creator kind of took off around the the early '80s, where people were like, Chris Claremont does really good X Men comics. X Men was the biggest seller, and mm-hmm. Jim Starlin does these really psychedelic comics. And I know who he is. Uh, you know that kind of stuff. Uh, Peter David doing the Hulk, for example. Um, but by the late '80s and early '90s, people were were really remembering the artists' names more than the writers. To the point that Marvel noticed this and said, "Hey, you know what? Todd McFarlane will give you your own Spider-Man comic. We're gonna give you yeah, a Spider-Man number one." I own one. one of them. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and so that one uh, just sold like gangbusters. They sold Jim Lee. You get your own uh, X-Men comic, and 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 he got to do X-Men number one, which is the biggest selling comic book of I don't know of all time, but certainly uh, since the Golden Age. Um, yeah. And um, and then you know Rob Liefeld, he didn't just get his own comic; he got to rename it. It was X-Force, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Valentino, uh, not really quite part of that category, but he was given Guardians of the Galaxy to take over. And, and, and so each of these people were, were given these things, but they wanted more. They wanted to be able to say, look, I want to make something and own it. Yeah. So they, so they got together, um, different stories about how it all happened, but they got together kind of secretly, uh, and then broke away and founded Image Comics, mm-hmm. like literally just leaving Marvel in the lurch because most of them were working for Marvel at the time. Yeah. And they found Image Comics with the idea that, if you publish here, you own it, you know, yeah. uh, everybody should get a fair share. I will say that that didn't end up being very true for some of the parts of yep. image and that led to lawsuits later, but for the most part, it was, it was the idea. Yeah. And um, I also want to point out that this isn't like the first time people would make their own comics. Obviously I mentioned underground in the eighties, they have what's called the black and white boom. And that's where a lot of indie comics like Ninja Turtles came out yeah. also Ninja high school and, and actually several ninja books now that I think about it. But uh, <laughs> but but a lot of things came Ninjas. out in the 80s through that. Some of them stuck around. The Tick is from that era, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a lot of these things, yeah, <laughs> continued. And then Image kind of legitimized that, saying, you know, there may not be as many as there were in the 80s terms of black and white publishers, but, but indie books can be real. And, and yeah. Image very quickly, a couple months went from being indie to being, Number four after Dark Horse, then number three right. before Dark Horse, mm-hmm. um, and and just kind of stayed there forever. Uh, other comics took notice of this. Uh, Marvel uh, had already done a few experiments of creator owned before with Epic Comics, um, which were all creator owned books that Marvel published, mostly creator owned books that Marvel published. Um, and then Dark Horse did this as well with its line, where it brought in creators like John Byrne and people who would be considered old creators compared to the image guys, although mm-hmm. only by like about 10 years. Um, and they, they let those guys make their own books where Hellboy came out of that, that thing. With Michael oh yeah. Marvel. I always um, forget Hellboy's Marvel. <laughs> no, it wasn't Marvel. It was Dark Horse. Dark Horse. Dark Horse. That's right. Okay. I was but, sitting there. The I was artist, like. The artist worked at Marvel. He, he did one of the okay. best Dr. Strange graphic novels, for example. Uh, okay. They team up with him and Dr. Doom. Um, and uh, uh, also Disney's Atlantis. That's all based on his art. If you look at it, you see it after oh, you realize it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but then you get to the, to the nineties and these attempts were, more real. This is where we end up having characters that are openly gay in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the big publishers, Marvel and DC, and um, also an image. Although I got to say, most of the gay characters I can think of an image were mainly for titillation purposes. But but Marvel famously had North Star uh, come out as gay. This character was actually designed with the idea that he was gay in mind, 
back in the day, but they could not say he was gay because they published wouldn't allow, wouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the writers said, you know what? I'm going to reveal his origin. He's part fairy. Uh, and, and he's so, so beautiful. That was, he really that was is beautiful. a way to sneak yeah. in the idea <laughs> that he was, uh, you know, gay. Uh, and there were other characters that were very clearly meant to be gay, but they didn't couldn't say it. Um, one of the first openly gay DC characters, picking on DC again, uh, was a character called Extraño, and you can call me Anti Extraño, and oh. it was uh, it was way over the top. And one of the enemies that, that oh, he wow. fought is a AIDS vampire called the Hemo Goblin. Um, so that's a thing. Um, wow, that's so, that's a interesting. It's a lot. thing to put together. Yeah, that's a lot to take in. But, but as it started, it, it became more and more acceptable. You know, just like having black characters became more common, and now having you know people from other countries could be actual human beings. Um, mm-hmm. You could have LGBT people be LGBT people. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the first uh, trans characters in comics uh, was from um, some of uh, uh, Grant Morrison's early stuff, and also Neil Gaiman, where they mm-hmm. included people with treated very seriously. Whereas prior to that, and even after that, there would be trans characters that were literally, that's the joke, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's literally a, a villain from the 40s called He, She, is a thing. Mm. Um, but, uh, but, they were, but, but it was happening. I mean, admittedly, the, the trans characters were non-code comics. Those were, those were characters that were like published through Vertigo or whatever, where DC was allowing this, but not... This is, again, a very different regime than DC of the 70s. They're definitely more progressive than Marvel at that point, I think. Um, and they, but they were publishing co- things that were not going to be put through the code. Uh, so that happened. Um, and then uh, image start off with this flashy, like we're going to be over the top explosions. But by the late nineties, you were getting more, you know, introspective comics, stuff that you would never see at Marvel and DC, you know? So, mm-hmm. so all of these things kind of evolved to be more, you know? Um, and then, and then things kind of uh, become cyclical as they as they are want to do. So by the late yeah. '90s and early aughts, you have characters kind of reminiscing about the old ways of being superheroes, but from a modern lens. So you mm-hmm. get uh, like um, Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross's Avengers, where they're going to be, you know, more they're colorful still, but they're more realistically treated. Uh, you get mm-hmm. um, also from Alex Ross. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, did I say Alex Ross? Kurt Busiek and Kurt. Uh, and, and George Pettis uh, did the Avengers. With Alex Ross, he did Marvels. And Alex Ross also did, uh, with Mark Wade Kingdom Come, which were superheroes, but trying to be from a more realistic point of view. And then you get stuff like Grant Morrison's X-Men, where it's X-Men from a more realistic point of view. And it's uh, trying to kind of take the ideas that are iconically superhero-y, but ground it more, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like... Yeah. Again, probably because of my age, like a lot of what I grew up with, how would you put it? I got to reap the benefits of now more, uh, I guess, more variety as far as like creators and stuff like that. So like the only Blue Beetle I knew was Jaime and I loved him. I loved Mm -hmm. him when I saw him. What was it? It's the Gargoyles creator. Wiseman, um, yeah. Young Justice, and Aqualad is black. And, and then at Marvel, by this time, you have characters like the Young Avengers, 
yeah. who initially, when that story first came out, had a couple of gay characters that were a couple. Yeah. But by the time you get to the, the second or third volume of Young Avengers, everybody on the team is gay. <laughs> like, like everybody but Kate Bishop Hawkeye, which is <laughs> like literally every single person on that team is, is gay by a non-binary or trans. And it's like, um, it's just, it just happened to be that way. It wasn't announced. This is our gay comic. It just, uh-huh. it just was what it was. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it's, it's funny that that's, uh, you know, you hear all the people saying, you know, you can't do that and uh, you shouldn't be trying to put politics in the comics, but like they've always been there. Yeah. Always. You know, there's a comic from the eighties where Captain America fights Ronald Reagan, who is revealed to be a snake person. This is an actual thing that happened. The reptilians, they're here, man. They're real. Well, I say revealed to be. It turns out somebody had poisoned his water and was turning him into a snake person, but still it happened. Oh, so, you know. So, yeah. You know, but, but my point is they've always been political. Mm. And this isn't even political. This is just reflecting humanity as it exists. Right. Um, you know, people have told me, you know, uh, two things I've, I've heard. One is, you, you don't need to change characters race when you're making the movie or whatever. And, and I've heard this, I've heard, I, I, I know black people have said they don't want that to happen. They would rather just have making characters, but other people told me, no, but they want it to happen. And the mm. issue is, is no matter how great your new character is, they're never going to have the name recognition of an 80 year old character. Yeah. You know, you say everybody knows spawn. Yeah. If you know people who read comics, they know who spawn is even if they never read spawn. Right. But if you know people who watch movies, they don't, they don't know, know who Spawn, Spawn is. is. No. You know? um, and so so it, that, that part makes sense. And the other part of it is, well, it would be, it, it's important to have people who are of a community writing characters from that community. And I've heard people tell me, well, no, I mean, you could, anybody could write it, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, but look at the ones that were made when they didn't. Yeah. Them, it's know? hard to talk about something that you don't know about. Like point blank, it just comes down to that. Like that's not for me to speak on because I've not lived it. Can I tell you something horrible about Miles Morales? <laughs> Are you gonna like hurt me? I love Miles Morales. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel like you're gonna we, really. We know what Miles' dad's name is. Oh, I used mm-hmm. to. Man, it's been a while because I haven't had access to comics for a while. So Miles, his mom is named Morales, mm-hmm. and his dad's name is Davis. The joke being, he could have been Miles Davis, but he used his mom's <laughs> name. His dad's first name is Jefferson. Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. Oh, sweet Jesus. Are we serious right now? Um, I believe it was meant to be kind of like a, like a little joke that like, but you know, whatever. But it is just kind of oh, doesn't no. maybe land great, though. It doesn't though. age well. No. It didn't age well from day one. So now in the comics, the official canon is that his dad took his mom's last name. So he's Jefferson Morales. I mean. This is why it's important to have people of color writing characters. Yes. Yeah. This is, um, and, and then I also had somebody it. tell me, somebody who is a creator of color, say, well, if they wanted to, creators back in the day could have made characters that were black or, or Asian or whatever. And I already gave some examples where they couldn't. Yeah. You know, where they tried to do that and, and they, they were failed. flat out told no. Yeah. Um, a Jewish superhero. The thing from the Fantastic Four. You know when they established him as Jewish? Ten years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's how he's been around since 1961. And it wasn't till the the, the, the 2010s that he was actually confirmed. Oh, yeah. By the way, he really is Jewish. Mm. 
Uh, what year did Moon Knight come out? Isn't he? No, he's not. Yes, Moon Knight is Jewish. Uh, okay, he came out he in, the, in, the, in the 70s. He didn't premiere as a Jewish hero. It was revealed eventually that he's Jewish and that kind of stuff. Okay. He actually premiered as a werewolf hunter who was given a costume because the people hiring him said, if you're going to be fighting heroes, you need to dress like a villain or something like that. Yeah. Um, but then later on, they retconned it and said that it came from the God and something like that. Yeah, but, but he's Jewish. There were Jewish characters. You know? Yeah, but they uh, weren't like um, out, outed. Yeah. Kitty Pride, for example, was, was introduced as a Jewish character. Is she really? Then, yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm not an X-Men person, so this is where I'm going to fail miserably with that. And people who love X-Men are like, what? I'm like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> I suck, but I know that people love their X-Men. And I like X-Men. I Jubilee has also famously used the N-word at least three times in comics in the 80s. Ooh. But all three of those times were where it was trying to emphasize the problems with racism. Mm. But but it's also written by white people that thought they were doing the right thing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it very much smacks of the 80s liberalism idea. Right. Yeah. So not a great look in retrospect, but um, they tried. I think that's a great reflection. Me more on like the, the, the history side of things. Um, I think that can be a really good reflection of just kind of American society, white American society overall, I guess. I mean, if I make any sense with that, it's just like, it's, it's having better realization more in this, this present day of being like, Oh, Hey, like let's, let's have better diversity and representation and Hey, let's get creators of, of color. Let's get women and mm -hmm. black creators and Asian creators. And you know, it, like it, let's get people in to be able to actually, <laughs> actually give their experience and put that to paper mm -hmm. and, 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 people read and see themselves in comics and mm -hmm. um like you gave the example earlier kevin of like not seeing a like a latino character and then that they were from a gang and you know that yeah. wasn't from mexico and they were american born they're from a gang and they're like now i'm a zero and you're like well okay that's that's what i, I got mean, hey it was it may not you have know? been my life but i knew people who that was their life so mm -hmm. it was close sure okay it was an attempt isn't it? Now, admittedly, literally, the writer said the reason he created the character is because he was dating a Latina girl at the time. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I, I love that. It's, I love that it's, that's just like that is why he was created. But all right, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so, I mean, then, yeah. I mean, I guess that brings up the question then for you now: How do you see kind of like the future of comics and and representation and having different creators? now in there to give their voice see that's the thing uh, marvel right now has been doing an initiative called marvel voices for the past couple of years and uh these are it's, it's really two things partially it's creators uh of various communities writing characters from those communities but it's also bringing in new creators who are from these communities uh, mm -hmm. So, for example, they did one specifically about Native American heroes. They brought in Native American creators who've never written a comic book before and had them work with people. And some people will hold this up and be like, oh, well, that's proof. They're just doing this just just, just to, to say they did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. But, like, we are now getting an evolution of these characters that we couldn't have had before. Uh, there's a character uh, from that, that 1970s X-Men where they had one person from each ethnicity 
one guy was a Native American called, you know, uh, Proudstar, the Thunderbird, and he had feathers in his hair and, and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, they, they brought in uh, people that are of his tribe, of his nation, mm-hmm. to redesign the character. And now he's wearing mostly turquoise. And this is a character, this is a color that has symbolic importance to that culture, mm-hmm. which makes more sense, you know? So mm-hmm. it's kind of cool to see those evolutions. Speaking um, for myself, I-, I found the character who I believe is Marvel's first ever Latino hero. Um, and it's from a, a joke comic that doesn't age well from the 40s, 1942. Okay. His name is Pedro the Peril. And um, he, you will not find him online anywhere. He's not anywhere online except for things that I've written about him. And, um, <laughs> uh, he, um, he's a bandito who okay. wants to be the, the biggest crook in all Mexico and rob everybody. <laughs> but he wants to make sure people feel good about it. Oh, so he goes to a town. Like Robin Hood. <laughs> well, so that's the funny part. I was describing this to somebody where he goes to towns with the purpose of being a bandito, seeing that the people are being put down upon by the local like like rich guy. Mm-hmm. So he puts his effort into taking down the rich guy, and then everybody cheers him on as the greatest bandito ever. And he goes, "There, now they fear me." And they're like, "Yeah, we love you." He goes, "That means they fear me, right?" And, and, and I said this to somebody, and they go, "So you're telling me he's just the Latino Luffy?" And I'm like, he is one piece. I mean, it is. Like, that's literally what he is. He's being a pirate. He's trying to be a bandito, but he's going around making people feel good about their lives. And in the story, he's only in one story. The story that he's in, he's got his 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 wife who he's like, oh, my love, you must stay aside and be safe. And she's like, but I have an idea of how we can solve this problem. No, no, no. You must be safe. So she goes to solve it without him knowing it and he's following her like what is she doing and she literally solves the whole problem by herself and you know everything is and i would love to see these old characters that were not super well done mm-hmm. and bring them back let's yeah. do something let's, this yeah. guy is not so racist that he could not be redeemed uh, i did have one person when i mentioned the story on tiktok one person said that they were offended that i would show it but like this guy is no more racist than Speedy Gonzalez, yeah, in the sense that they never have him speak with a lisp. He never speaks with an with a, with that that yes me mm-hmm. you know that, 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 mm-hmm. that, that, that this is yeah. it you know that doesn't happen with with Pedro the Peril. Um, you know uh, they don't like everybody's drawn cartoony by that or like the way he draws Mexicans or the way he draws white people. Like everybody's drawn exactly the same way. Okay, you know so so there's that because he only did that one issue. All the other ones he did were with white people, thankfully, um, but. Um, <laughs> But so, so it's not that bad compared to other things. And, and, and Speedy Gonzalez is a character that every Mexican and Mexican-American I know loves. You know, mm. he's been embraced. Like they literally took him off Nickelodeon for a while because they were afraid of offending Latinos. And Latinos were like, we love him. Bring him back. <laughs> Bring him back. You know, Wait, so Speedy Gonzalez? Yeah, Speedy Gonzalez. Oh. Um, now I say this, by the way, uh, I, I, I taught at a high school for years uh, that had gone to the state championship. And they were playing against a, a mostly white school that had actually coincidentally the same name of the school as, as, as ours. And they huh. would actually hold up signs showing a Texas boot crushing Speedy Gonzalez. And, and, and they were like using it to become a racist, you know, call. And yeah, yeah these characters can be misused, but we want them for ourselves. Yeah. 
we want them for things mm-hmm. that we can be proud of. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's a Mexican uh, TV show from the eighties uh, by a comedian uh, named Chespirito. And he created a character called a Chaplin Colorado. And he is a goofy superhero is what he is. He's just like, you know, everybody underestimates me. And he's like, Oh no, I'm going to get beat up again. And it, it's very <laughs> silly, but people love him. And Marvel, a, a Mexican American creator introduced a character at Marvel called the Red Lotus. Chapulín Carado literally translates to the Crimson Grasshopper. So she's the Red Lotus. Mm. And she wears his colors. And she is completely positive no matter what is happening. And it's it's just, it's an, it's an homage to him. Yeah. And so when creators from a community get to create people, they're making things that other people in that community are like, I know what that is. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Blue Beetle earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm a Marvel guy, but like, I love the Blue Beetle movie, not for the superhero stuff. The superhero oh, stuff was very, it. it was very average. It was very average. Okay. But, but the but the family stuff was great. Was it? Is it is like, it Jaime is the Blue Beetle in this movie? It, okay. Well, I mean, all the Blue Beetles are mentioned in this movie, but it's oh, about Jaime. But okay. the thing, the movie. Sorry if you haven't seen it. It's a minor spoiler. No, it's okay. The movie is not about Jaime against the villains. It's about the Reyes family against the villains, and one of them happens to be named Jaime. And okay. that's what makes it so amazing okay. because that's part of the culture that it's the whole family getting together. Literally the climactic scene of the, of the movie is not the hero fighting the villain. It's the whole family. Yeah. Fighting the villain. And I'm like, that's cool. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. This is so cool. That is um, cool. You know, we, we, we kind of stopped in the mid two thousands in the say 2005 to 2015 era. Kind of. So um, there was this effort to make comics, dark again but not not in the over-the-top 90s dark more in the we need to be more realistic dark yeah so they just murdered the hell out of all of those fun characters yeah all of the fun ones from that just like international run had they either turned evil got essayed got shot in the head all that kind of stuff but in the aftermath of that we get Jaime Reyes. And they've since brought back the, the goofy, fun Blue Beetle, thankfully. I guess yeah. he got better from the shot in the head. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, but now he's kind of a mentor to Jaime Reyes. That's cool. Um, and you get, you had to go through the dark to get to the light. Yeah, you do. <laughs> so, like, for example, Ironheart, who supposedly is going to get a Disney Plus series soon, um, she came out after they once again killed Tony Stark off. Um, and they brought her in. And one thing I think is really funny about that is that there were a lot of fans complaining, how dare you? How dare you say the new Iron Man is a teenage black girl? How can she be Iron Man? Uh, how dare you say the new Miss Marvel is a Muslim teenage girl? How dare you? You know, all this stuff like that. Um, how dare you say that the smartest person on earth is an uh, 11-year-old black girl? How dare you say that? You know. Oh wait, are um, we talking about the same eleven-year-old black girl? Oh, yes, we are. And are I we love talking that. about? Wait, Moon Girl. Yeah, and Devil Dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. one of my favorite comics of <laughs> ever. <Yeah. laughs> well, I've never really loved her comics, but I always uh, loved her character. But I, I love the cartoon. The cartoon the is. Cartoon taking, is so good. I want them to make so the comic good. more like the cartoon. Yes, but one hundred percent agree. <laughs> the thing is, is all those fans that complained about that. It's like, is this your first day in comic books? Welcome to comic books. Yeah. It's like, 
when they killed Superman and it made international news, mm-hmm. all the comic readers are like, you know, he's only going to be dead for a little bit, right? right. You know, when, when they took out the metal from Wolverine's bones, it was like, oh, no, you've changed him forever. It lasted a year and a half. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. Um, no, that's a little bit longer, I guess, but they did give it back to him pretty quick. Oh, Superman was dead for two years, I think. Um, and then, or even not even two years. All these things, they're not permanent. You make a new Iron Man, all you're doing is getting new characters. Mm-hmm. Oh, Thor's a woman now? Good news. You now have two superheroes as soon as the original Thor comes back. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You know, it's just like, will these new ones last? I don't know. Maybe. Some of them do, some of them don't. Right. But I'd much rather have more new characters than just have the same old ones all the time. Yeah. So that's, that's what I was like, you know, what are you complaining about? It's like you've never read a comic book before. For yeah. me, it always mm-hmm. comes down to I don't get too, you know, choked up about, oh, you killed so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. I'm more worried that, like, if the writing is good and the content is exactly. good, I am your reader. You know, and if, if if it is something I can connect to and if it's real and if it's not. Because, um, I mean, and I think any media source is guilty of this. When stuff gets, like, preachy and hard for me to connect to, I'm like, all right, I'm out. You know, I need real stories, real people, real things that I'm like, oh, wow. That's like, even if I don't, again, like Jaime, I'm not a Latino or a Latina. I don't know that, but it was still, I loved delving into his character. He's was one of my favorites out of that whole series, mm-hmm. you know? So if your writing is good and again, wonderful stories from creators who come from all walks of life, like, that's what I want to read. I want to read all the interesting things that people have to say. And if it is Iron Man as a young, smart black girl, like, well, all right, we'll bring it on. Like, if the writing is good, I'm here. But no, it, 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 it's, it's exactly that. Um, I, I, I think that the that era of, you know, seeing in the MCU where they, <laughs> to use the colloquial term, race bend sometimes, mm-hmm. people are noticing, people, white people, are noticing that there should be more variety out there. And uh, companies are realizing that that variety has to come from the people themselves. Um, That's something that I think when they tried that in 1976 with the X-Men, wasn't that successful because they could not visualize that anybody in Africa was not a tribes person living in in the Savannah. They, They could not visualize that a Native American would do anything other. Literally, his first appearance is him chasing down a buffalo and tackling it, because that's what a Native American would do if he had superpowers. I guess. You know? <laughs> um, the, the big example I, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day is the the Romani people. Um, you know, um, famously, Scarlet Witch and Doctor Doom are both Romani. Nobody ever talks about Quicksilver, but he is too. Um, but uh, every time they would show the Romani people from anything prior to uh, let's say 1998 um they were drawn like caricatures of what you think the romani people would look like in the year 1870 down to having wooden carts Mm -hmm. being pulled by horses you know and 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 the outfits of eastern europe um like literally no one at marvel seemed to think that what a modern romani person might look like i don't know if they've ever addressed that with scarlet witch i don't know if they've ever gone back and shown like here's what her family looks like today and not mm-hmm. just, Oh, they're not using wooden carts. You know, I, I feel like there's an excuse for Dr. Doom. Cause I feel like with him, he can just say, it looks like a, a wooden cart, but once I push this button, it becomes a hover thing. And I was like, go, you know, go with it. But um, <laughs> my point is, it's like, it, it, there's a bigger effort now 
to show that representation and reflect that history and reflect America. Yep. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Cause it's, it's more than just a one color, one shade, one backstory, you know, for sure. Yeah. By a lot. <laughs> oh, I, I, know what I was going to say a minute ago, you mentioned that you, you don't really, it's not about, Oh my God, the character died. You want to know if the story is good. Um, it, it, I think most comic readers, if you've been reading for more than a year, you know that death is not permanent. Yeah. Um, uh, it used to be the joke was the one of the only characters you'll never bring back is the two characters you'll never bring back is Gwen Stacy uh, and and Bucky and maybe Norman Osborn. All of them have come back. Uh, Gwen Stacy, admittedly through alternate reality, but like for the longest time, those were like them. Those are the ones that will never come back, and they did. You know, um, but um, but one of the best death comics I've read was uh, the death of Johnny Storm of the Fantastic Four. Um, and everybody knew it's not going to be forever. Like he stayed dead for a good three, four years. I think I don't know. It was a while two years, maybe I don't know, but the death was so well written, mm-hmm. so dramatic that it's like, it, it, it's a comic that can bring tears to your eyes. It yeah. Was so well done. Oh, wow. You guys, this has been such an amazing chat and just like through the history of something that obviously we're, we, we love and, you know, you guys sitting with you two, so knowledgeable. <laughs> like I'm coming in as well, like a like a low level fan, but I don't know if I um, count as knowledgeable, but yeah, <laughs> I get excited about uh, it. <laughs> well, obviously, and it's something that so many people do get so excited about and are passionate about. And there's so much, um, there's so much nostalgia there, but there's obviously so much as we've been able to do tonight. You know, to be able to talk about how comics that people might have maybe, you know, years ago brushed off as like, you know, a silly medium or just like a thing for, for kids or whatever, um, or for nerds, for (laughs) geeks, you know, cartoons, but really, uh, you know, is such a great, it can really, it's been such a great reflector of American society and the history of, um, you know, the country in which we, we live and, and, uh, I I've just had such a great time. So thank you so much, Kevin, for coming yeah. on and giving us your time. Oh my gosh. What? Thank you. This well, thank so you gracious for bringing like the comic history that I've never heard that mm. I meant to say this like an hour ago, but I'm going to say it now because I'm a <laughs> glass of wine deep and I have ADHD to the extreme. So I'm going to talk about something from like two hours ago, but uh, yeah, like when, just when you were talking about all these attempts at, bringing like you said um like black characters to the forefront or gay characters or other people of representation i didn't know all of that i didn't know that this was attempted time and again and then stopped and all of that like i had never heard any mm-hmm. of that so it was really cool to hear a totally new side of comic history for me anyway maybe other people are more well versed than i am but i did not know that you know what? I, I love the the concept of the way you guys were approaching it when you asked me about it, because I often joke that like the thing I know most about is useless information, you know, but by viewing it as a mirror on society that created it and is reflected by it, that's actually is a useful way of looking at it and seeing, yeah. you know, it, it's easy, like you said, to look at the 1950s and say, oh, well, it's this perfect American society until you actually peel away those layers. Right. And one of the ways to do that is by looking at the, the fiction that it created. And that's the, the Westward comic books come in. So it works out really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Thank you. And and I know that you've got some uh, fantastic projects on the horizon and, you know, things that you're working on. Uh, we're really excited about it, as you can see. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so do you know roughly when those uh, are coming out, like when those will be available to the public? Well, the uh, the the wrestling book uh, from the, the, the wrestling, you know, kids novel uh, from the Master Public, it's going to be published by a company called Future House. And it's going to be starring, as we said, Dragon Lee. And his family. <laughs> Katie's excited about that. <laughs> so excited. Um, that, uh, it's been written for over a year, but it's, it's in the process. It's going to be published simultaneously in English and in Spanish. It's going to have Swish. art with it. Um, you know, and it, will, it should come out this spring. Uh, I think it will definitely be out by, by, by the summer, but it's supposed to come out mid-spring. So I'm quite you know, looking forward to that myself. Uh, as far as the, the Latina superhero I told you about, um, you know, that's through Chispa Comics, part of Scout Comics. Chispa is currently putting out a series of one shots called The 13 Origins. Um, already right now, you can go to hopefully a discerning comic book store and find uh, the first one, which is The 13 Origins Sopilote, which came out in October. Um, it's basically like a kind of like a Latino Batman if he actually had a heart. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to put that on Batman. Batman is a good character. Don't get me wrong. Batman is a good character. Yeah. But this is basically like Batman, but instead of just teaming up with the police, yeah. he goes to the homeless person with mental issues and says, how can I help you? Yeah. Which mm -hmm. is different from, say, punching the person with mental issues. You right. Know? Um, so there's that. And mm -hmm. then uh, the second uh, one shot is called uh, you know, The 13 Origins Pyroclast. And it's about a young man who's just walled himself off from the world sometimes. And his power functions as a, like, literal wall of burning stones over his body. So that's pretty cool. That one came out, um, it was supposed to come out in November, it came out in early December. Uh, the third one is called 13 Origins The Wake, and it's basically a, a take on a, a young lady who just can't stop running. You know what I mean? Uh, so so they're all just kind of taking characters. Every one of these characters is uh, 18 years old when they've got their powers, and it, the comics are meant to be kind of in real time. So this is all happening kind of as they're developing their powers. And each of them is inspired by their Mesoamerican day sign because uh, Aztec uh, uh, Maya mythology uh, has a, a calendar system, which is, you know, uh, 13 um, numbers and, and 20 nouns, and they go together to make your day sign. So, for example, the day I was born was six jaguar, you know, so each of them have that. And if you want to look that up, AzteckCalendar.net, it's a website. You can look it up yourself. Um, but um, <laughs> the my book for that is the 13th of the 13 day signs. Uh -huh. So mine uh -huh. comes out next October. You know, uh, and Best that month is, of the whole year. Yes, I know. <laughs> it is, I agree. My favorite holiday is Halloween, followed closely by Thanksgiving because I love the food. Um, <laughs> not for any other reason for Thanksgiving, but the food's good. The um, food is, is very good. Fair. I agree That's with you fair. there. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so that's going to come at the end of the year. In the meantime, though, I am planning to announce a, a self-published comic soon. Um, and I am working with uh, some artists. Uh, it's, it's something that I've actually been wanting to do for a while. Um, and it actually ties to exactly what we've been talking about. Uh, because it is about comic book history. Uh, it all started because a friend of mine who, who ran a comic book store said, man, if only the golden age of comics could happen today. And what he meant was 
I wish comic books could sell today like they sold in the 40s. Yeah. But I took that literally. And I was like, what would it take for the golden age to happen today? <sighs> well, the Great Depression can't have happened. World War II can't have happened. If World War II and the Great Depression didn't happen, then civil rights probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And I started backtracking how the world would be different. And what I'm doing is I'm telling a story about superheroes that are very familiar to anyone who's ever read a comic book who fought in World War II in the 1940s, reminiscing about the good old days of the last great war and all that stuff. Um, And then they're going to encounter another world in which World War II is happening right now in 2024. And realizing that while there were certainly bad guys in World War II, the good guys weren't that great. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to overlook things like Japanese internment, for example. Yeah. Um, it's it's easy to overlook the segre- segregated uh, uh, units and all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, that's my goal. And and the first issue of that is going to be kind of heroes looking back on the war. And to make it easier for readers, these are all heroes that existed in the 1940s. Um, these are all public domain superheroes that I've, kind of redesigned to look even more like the characters that they were ripped off of to begin with. Mm-hmm. So you can see a character like, I know who that character is supposed to be. And I know who that character is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's pretty quick and easy to see. Um, so I'll be announcing that very soon. I'm working with the interior artist, Ronaldo Garza. He just did an amazing comic called Tank McGregor, which just the name alone is just great. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's like it, he, he calls it like a 1980s sci-fi romp. And that's exactly what it is. Um, and then I have an artist who's working with me for the cover, uh, Freddie Lopez Jr., who just beautiful, beautiful painted work. Like he can take like Transformers or Guardians of the Galaxies and make them look like they're just fine art pieces. Huh. So he, he, when I told him about this, he said he was super excited to do the cover. So it, it's going to be fun. So some point, some point this month, I hope, I hope by, by the end of January, if not earlier, I want to announce officially a crowdfunding campaign so I can publish this. I say crowdfunding yeah. campaign because I'm paying out of my own pocket, the artists for part of it. And I don't have money. I'm a teacher. <laughs> um, and the goal is the crowdfunding <laughs> campaign will, will pay them for the finish, the comic book and also reimburse me for the first half. Right. Um, um, but we'll see how that goes. Um, but anyway, that's something I'm really looking forward to. I've wanted to do this for a long time. And I wanted to, because we were talking about comic book history tell you that that this is exactly what my story is about (laughs) my story is about a superhero universe in which everything that happened in comics basically happened but reflected the real world history and in real time Uh, so that happens and then they're going to see you know eventually the war where that world where that didn't happen and and kind of get a reflection of that. That's that's the goal there. So it's something I'm, I'm very excited about. I've been, I've been thinking about this for years. I wrote the script during the pandemic, and then I literally told my friends, I don't think this will sell. I can't see people putting money into crowdfunding for this. And mm. they're like, do it anyway. Do it anyway. Do it. I'm so glad they oh. said that. <laughs> Me too. That's... Uh, what oh, will that sorry. be? I'm av- a little bit speechless. <laughs> what will that be available through? Me? When it comes, okay. 
So, like, for example, Theo at the comic I put out myself, mm -hmm. I only sell that in person at conventions. For this one, I will probably, because this one I'm going to have a little bit more control over, uh, I'm probably going to put this online eventually, hopefully somehow. But for now, it's going to be probably through Kickstarter. Um, okay. My thing is, if it if it fails, I still paid the artists and I'm just out the money. If it succeeds, okay. then I can finish paying the artists yeah. and publish it. Yeah. And then it will be available, you know, through Kickstarter. People can find me. Uh, I have a website, kevingarcia.com. Uh, yes, all the other Kevin Garcias have to think of something else when they put it on their name. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I am, I am that? that guy. <laughs> and yes, my website has not been updated. I'm still using a 2011 WordPress template, but whatever. I own kevingarcia.com. You do. Um, I also have uh, monomythic.com, which is my which is my publishing brand name is monomythic. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm definitely, um, you know, TikTok, which is where we met. So I'll be announcing <laughs> it there eventually um, with uh, Kevin Garcia underscore com. Cause if I'm going to own Kevin Garcia.com, I'm going to lean into it. Yeah. As oh, you should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should. That's perfect. We'll have all of, um, all of your information linked in our show notes as well too in the show description. So people can find you that way as well, but please, yeah, please give them a follow. And I am so excited. I'm excited about all these upcoming projects that you have. I think they all sound amazing. And, and I've got a few other projects be... that I can't talk about yet. Oh, oh okay. Well, one day, <laughs> but I've been, I've been invited know. to do <laughs> a, few other, a few other projects. Ooh. Okay. Well, good. Yeah. We would love to know about those. And, yes. and uh, yes, we would. I, <laughs> I, I think it's so, uh, I don't know, serendipitous. I think, think it's wonderful that you're, you have this upcoming project with the history of comic books. And I, I'm, I think it sounds fascinating and I, I'm so excited for you and I, I'm I think this is going to be great. Yeah, yeah. It sounds cool. I think once people, it's one of those things like once people would know what it was about and like got into it, they'd be like, Oh, really cool. But I see what you mean. Like the whole thing is getting people to pick it up. Well, it's like this. When, when I did Teowat, I knew it was going to at least get funded mm -hmm. because you're talking about Latino creators making their own comic for the first time. You're talking about Mexican history. You're talking about like there's, there's this cultural, you know, push to get that done. I knew people would want to back it and people liked it, I, I, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. And at least they told me that. Maybe they lied to me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but and, and then at the same time I did that and I, I asked for, I think. 6,000 and I got 8,000 or 7,000. I don't oh, wow. remember what I got out of it, but, but, it, but it was successful at the same time. I did that. Another guy did a Kickstarter and he asked for the same amount I did. And he ended up making $42,000 because of very two special assets on the front of his hero. Um, he knows his um, audience. Okay. Uh, sure. Sure. Are sure. Are we talking about titties right now? Yes, we are. Okay. Um, I was like, I was like, and, and, I don't mean to be blunt, but I just need to make sure I'm not confused. But uh, but hey, it, it, he knows his audience, so you know, yeah. to him. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, I'm talking about more straightforward superheroes. Yeah. And I'm like, it's a little bit harder. I think I'll see how that goes. I will say there is an audience for people who like the idea of taking public domain heroes and reinventing them, which is what I'm doing here. Um, there is an audience of people who like Golden Age, which is what I'm doing here. And there's, there's an audience of people who like um, heroes with a, uh, a deeper meaning to the story, which is also what I'm hoping to do. Yeah. So um, we'll see if those audiences can converge and help me make this happen. Unite. 
Yeah. Avengers Assemble. (laughs) (laughs) I felt that coming. Thank you. Thank you again so much. And uh, we'll be doing this uh, again in in a couple of weeks. We'll see you again in the smoke circle. In the meantime, get money, get high, give love. And Katie, give us an Excelsior. An Excelsior? (laughs) Oh, man, where's my cat? Excelsior! Excelsior! I, I know you said Katie, but I heard Kitty. Hey, Kitty. Kitty, too. Also the correct yeah. answer. Also right. It's amazing. Bye, folks. Bye. Later.